Good morning. This morning we're going to read from the book of James, chapter 4, 1 to 6. If you're using the Pew Bible, it will be on page 1012, 1012. Let us hear the word of God. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you are asked wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Amen. That's the word of God. We've been in the book of, of James for the last few weeks. We jumped back in. If you haven't already, find that scripture passage. Real wisdom, real faith is the title of our series. Here's the sermon title for today, Wisdom in Conflict. Wisdom in Conflict. One of the one of the problems is that right off the bat, often we don't understand what wisdom is, especially God's wisdom. I think sometimes we think that God's wisdom is the ability to figure out how to get out of our trials. God, show me how to solve the problem or show me how to correct the situation. When Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted, the enemy, Satan, came to him with earthly wisdom that said, hey, Jesus, if you're hungry, why don't you just turn the stones into bread, problem solved. But Jesus knew that although that's earthly wisdom and makes a whole lot of sense to everybody sitting here, if you're hungry, eat a sandwich. But Jesus knew that that was not godly wisdom, that true wisdom was, no, I'm going to trust my Father. Man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives from the Word of God. Jesus, jump off the cliff. God will catch you. The angels will catch you. They'll protect you. That sounds like good logic, but no. Godly wisdom says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, do you want to avoid the, the cross? Just bow down to me. I'll give you the whole world. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go through this whole suffering thing, this whole man of sorrows business. You can be in charge tomorrow. No, we only worship the Lord. We only worship the Father. 
See, that's godly wisdom. Godly wisdom does not say, how do I get out of my problem as soon as possible? Godly wisdom says, what is God teaching me? What is God doing in me through the problem, through the conflict, through the interpersonal conflict, as we'll see today? We're going to have one lesson with eight subpoints today. <laughs> okay? So here's our lesson. Relational struggles are an opportunity for repentance, grace, and faith. Relational struggles are an opportunity for repentance, grace, and faith. Are any of you in a relational struggle or conflict right now? Can you think of an interpersonal relationship that is not going well? If you're not in one now, you will be soon. There, there's always one right around the corner, isn't there? The church is not devoid of this, is it? Not in James' day, not in our day. You don't have to look far to hear a conflict, do you? Just go out to the church parking lot after church, you'll probably hear several stories if you linger. What about your marriage? What about your friendships? What about with your children? Children, what about with your parents? What about with your aging parents? Are you involved in any kind of conflict this morning? I stand up here very humbly. I am, I am no stranger to conflict, personal, interpersonal conflict in my life. I've told you stories about me and my marriage and seasons of my marriage where I was plotting my escape. If you've been in this church long enough, you know that I have had interpersonal conflict with other leaders of this church. We all struggle with relational strife, don't we? Maybe it doesn't look as big as those things I just mentioned. Maybe it's just avoiding someone. The silent treatment. Maybe it's just a feeling of shame that you get when you're in certain situations or around certain people or guilt you feel. Or maybe it is true animosity or, or hatred towards another person, just bitterness. James wants us to understand that Jesus came. Jesus died so that we could be free from these conflicts. This is not pie in the sky. You don't have to be at war with each other. If James didn't think it was possible, he wouldn't write about it. Now, before I keep going... 
I am not, this morning when you're thinking about a relational conflict, I am not talking about, uh, my sermon today is not about an abusive relationship, okay? I want you to have in mind the normal daily, monthly, yearly conflicts that we're all walking through. An abusive relationship is one where one person in the relationship has an excess of power. They have power over the other person, and they use that power to harm, control. It's a one-way relationship of harm. I'm talking this morning about two-way relationships, okay, where two people are, are going after each other. If you are in an abusive relationship, physically abusive relationship, you need to leave or call the police. If you think you are in an emotionally or spiritually abusive relationship, you need to come talk to one of us as pastors so that we can help you discern that and see if that's actually what's going on, okay? So I'm not talking about that. If you're in that situation, please, please, please come talk to us, get help. Having said that, I'm going to give you eight truths from this passage that we need to embrace if we are going to learn to overcome conflict with grace, with the grace of Jesus Christ. So here we go. Number one, first thing we need to do, number one, is look beneath the surface. Look beneath the surface. It starts out with James asking a question. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? This is a penetrating question. It's not just rhetorical. They, they don't know. We don't know. We get this answer wrong. If I asked you this question, what's causing your conflict with this person? Your answer is going to be something about that person. I am in conflict with my pastor because my pastor does blah, 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 blah. I am in conflict with my spouse because they don't ever blah, 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 blah. I can't get along with that other coworker because you haven't seen what they do. They always do. We always, our answer to the question, James's question, what's causing the fight is always the other person. The woman you gave me, right? This, this, this has been the description since Genesis 3. <laughs> he doesn't lead our family. She's bossy. He's wrong theologically. He doesn't do his fair share. She hurt my feelings. My parents are never satisfied with what I do got to look beneath the surface of that. Number two, we have to identify our desires. Identify your desires. So James asks the question, and then he gives us the correct answer. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. He's using two different words here, passions and desires, to explain our longings or our wants. The first word, passions, is is where we get the word hedonism from. These are strong passions or lusts. These are illegitimate desires. So, for example, if if you are plotting someone's harm, 
Nope. You should not desire someone to be harmed or someone to fail at the job so that you look better. If you are plotting your, uh, your, that you're going to cheat on your spouse, nope. That is, that is a heat, that's a hedone. That's against, that's against God. If you're, if you're plotting revenge, if you're plotting how to destroy a reputation, if you're plotting how you're going to just manipulate the relationship to get what you want, if you're thinking about how long you're going to give the silent treatment so that they just feel the, the fire underneath them, that is an illegitimate desire. And then he also uses the word, chapter, uh, verse 2, you desire and do not have. This is the word epithumeo, which can mean a legitimate desire that gets out of control. It goes unmet, and so it just grows and grows and grows. So a desire to be loved, a desire to be respected, a desire to be accepted, a, desi- a desire for security or strength, all of that's legit. All of that's legitimate. You should want those things. But when you don't get it from the relationship, what happens? The desire increases. It grabs, it grabs hold of your heart even more and starts to strangle your heart. And the result? So you murder. You fight. You quarrel. You go to war. James is using very strong language here. Just as his big brother Jesus did back in Matthew 5. You say, you fool, you call each other idiot, you've murdered in your heart. We go to war. We're ready for a fight. Some of us are training for the fight. We're plotting our responses and and, uh, plotting our revenge against people. Number three. You have to own your problems. Oh, that we could understand this concept. You know, this, this is therapy 101. <laughs> um, is it not this, verse 1, is it not this, that your passions are at war where? Within you. It's your problem. Your conflict is not the other person's problem. It's your problem. It is your own passions, your own desires that are destroying you. It is a personal problem. We have to own our own problems and be able to look at the person we're in conflict with and say, this is not your problem. This is my, it might be, it might even be their fault. It might be their fault, but it's not their problem. It's your problem. And you have to own it as your problem. My problem with you is my problem, not your problem. (laughs) That's what we have to be able to say. As long as we continue to see the problem in my own heart as the other person's problem to fix or change or correct, the conflict will always remain. It'll never be solved. Until we take responsibility for our own hearts, you have to take responsibility for your own heart 
your own response, your own feelings. They're your feelings. They're not her feelings, his feelings. They're your feelings. Number four. Now we're ready to repent. Verse four. You adulterous people. Ouch. So here's the good news. You're married to God. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Here's the bad news. Every time you are in interpersonal conflict, you are cheating on God. It literally says, you adulteresses. James is saying that when we go to others and expect them to be God for us, we're cheating on God. We're sneaking around on God. Because you see, only God can satisfy the longings of our hearts. Only God, can, is, only God is meant to. Only God is big enough. Only God is eternal enough. Only God is loving enough. Only God is accepting enough. Only God is honoring enough. Only God has the ability to give your soul what it craves. Not your wife, not your husband, not your child, not your boss, not your pastor, not your small group leader, not your best friend. Nobody else can do what God can do for you. And when you run to them and demand that they do that, even without demanding it, you demand it by your actions or your looks or your comments or your just overall expectations, when you demand that, you are demanding from a human being something that they were never meant to be able to give you, and only God is able to give you. And you are an adulteress. He goes on to say, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship with the world. He's not talking about the people of the world. That's not what James means. He's not talking about relationships with non-Christians. He's talking about the world's system. The system of the world that says we earn, we achieve, we perform for each other. The knowledge of good and evil. False wisdom, the knowledge of good and evil from the garden James is saying that if you want that system, you become an enemy of God. God's system is grace. God's system is, see that tree? That's that's eternal life. Eat it. It's free. You don't got just eat it. Just take, receive. Receive, eat. Like communion. We receive, take, eat. This is my body. Receive it. Just receive it. Just receive my love. Just receive my mercy. Just take it. Open the gift. Here's the present. Open it up. That's God's system. And when we relate to people in an opposite system that says, I love you if you, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you have become an uh, enemy of God and an enemy of his system. You have placed each other under law. And that's why you have conflict. 
And so God says, listen, look at people the way I look at people. Look at people with grace. Look at people with forgiveness. Look at people with compassion. Jesus forgave people that never even asked. Jesus forgave people knowing that they were going to pound nails into his wrists while he's forgiving them. Jesus fed an ungrateful mob of 5,000 people, people that were, would complain. And after he explained the miracle to them, they were like, we don't understand. You're a lunatic. And they left him and they abandoned him. That's the compassion and love of God. Jesus looked at people and he was moved with compassion for them. Listen, we've got to look at each other with a future view, not just a present view. Can you see the people in your life as what they will be in the future? Are you tracking with me? Michelangelo takes a big block of marble, and he doesn't see a big block of marble, does he? He sees the David. If I just, if we just, God takes us, we're a big block of marble, and God says, that's not what you're always going to be. You're not eternally going to be a big block of marble. You're going to be a beautiful masterpiece. You are my poema. You are my work, my masterpiece. Can we look at each other that way? Can we look at our lives, not just in the temporary, but in the eternal, knowing that we often sacrifice eternal glory for temporal happiness? Maybe you're in the hard relationship because God is working in you an eternal weight of glory. But all you want is the temporary happiness. Let me just pause here and ask, hey, are you married to God? Are you the friend of God? If you're a Christian, you should be able to boldly say, amen. (laughs) Yes, I'm married to God. My life is connected to him. I am one spirit with the Lord. Jesus is my friend. I am walking hand in hand with him through life. But maybe you're here today and you're hearing this language, you're reading this language, you're hearing me talk, and, and you would say, I'm married to God? I don't even know what that means. Friend of God. Here's what it means. To be married to God means that you have recognized that you need God to come and bring his unconditional love into your life, a love that frees you from a heart that will chase all other loves, that will be an adulteress, that will chase money and success and sex and all of these other relationships and status and beauty and power, chasing all of those things all of your life instead of a heart devoted to, covenanted with the heart of God himself. In Christianese, we call that getting saved. Are you saved? You say, well, I don't need a husband to save me. Yeah, you need this one. You need this one, okay? Men, women, I don't care who you are. You need this one. 
You might not need any other husband or wife. That's probably true. But you need God, your husband. We all do. Will you receive him today? Will you walk the aisle with God? (laughs) Will you say, I do to God this morning? I give my life to you the way you gave your life to me on the cross. Will you do that? He's proposing. Every day of your life, God is saying, will you marry me? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with you. In other words, I'll come in and be your best friend. I'll come in and I'll I'll move in. Will you open the door? Number five. In relational conflict, we not only repent of our sin against God, seeing that all of our relational struggles, all of our conflict, not struggles necessarily, but conflict, meanness, wars and quarrels and fighting and I hate you, when we see that all of that is spiritual adultery against God and friendship with an anti-God system, once we see that and repent of it, now we can begin to trust the jealousy of God for us. The jealousy of God? Verse 5 is a really hard and confusing verse, but it's also gloriously beautiful. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? Christian, let me tell you something. God loves you with a jealous love, with a love that is so deep and so powerful that he, he refuses to let you go. I will not let you go. There's this book in the Old Testament called Hosea, and in Hosea, uh, Hosea the prophet is told to marry a woman who will cheat on him over and over, but Hosea loves her, and he loves her, and he loves her, and he wins her back. And then God says, that's me, that's me and you, my people, and you keep cheating on me. You're an adulteress, an adulteress, an adulteress. And at one point, God's like, I can't take it anymore. I want a divorce. And then suddenly in the middle of the book, God says, no, I don't. I love you, and I'm going to get you back, and I'm going to take you out into the wilderness. And it literally says these words, and I'm going to woo you. I'm going to woo your heart and get you back. You see, that's the love God has for you. He yearns jealously for you. Don't judge me. One of, one of my favorite movies, one of my guilty pleasure movies is this movie Taken. Has anybody seen this movie? It's this movie where this dad, and he, you, you know, used to be some sort of, you know, whatever, kill you with his thumbs kind of guy, and, 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 and then the bad guys steal his daughter. She goes to France, and the bad guys steal his daughter, and there's this scene at the beginning of the movie where the dad's like, I will find you. He's talking to the bad guys. I will find you. I will kill you. I'm getting my daughter back. And then the rest of the movie is this dad doing everything, I mean everything, in his power to get his daughter back. You know why I love that movie? Because it's like, that's what God has done for us. 
Nothing will stop him. Nothing. He'll fly to the other side of the world. He'll do anything he has to do to get you back into his arms. Do you believe that about God this morning? Do you believe that that's the jealous yearning that God has for you? And can God's jealousy for you be your security, be your peace, be your comfort? Can his jealousy for you be your stability and your strength? So that now, number six, now we can start to take our desires directly to God, the jealous God who yearns to dwell with us. I think what we all know is that relational conflict and prayerlessness are usually walking hand in hand, aren't they? You show me a couple who's angry at each other, I'll show you a couple that's probably not praying together. Very unlikely that they're spending quality time talking to God about it. You show me a teacher who's frustrated with all the kids in their class, I'll show you a teacher that probably hasn't prayed for those kids in their class lately. You show me a parent whose kids are driving them nuts, are you praying? Because this is what happens when our, when, our inner, when our horizontal relationships run amok, we forget about God and we have not because we ask not. You do not have because you do not ask. Are you praying for grace and love to control your heart? James' big brother Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Does a son ask his father for bread and get a rock? Nope. Does a, does a son ask his father for an egg and get a scorpion? Nope. And then Jesus says these words, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You have not because you ask not. And then He says this, sometimes you ask, verse 3, sometimes you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. God, change my wife. God, I know you can change her. I know you can do a work in her life. Come on now. <laughs> Come on now. God, Change my children. Dear God. Lord, change Pastor Andrew. Change him, Lord. <laughs> we pray to spend it on our own passions, don't we? 
We want God to rubber stamp our agenda. Like God is our our genie or our divine waiter. God, bring peace to my relationship. Yeah, but that's just because you can't, you can't, you don't want to, you don't want to work through the conflict. You don't want the conflict to do its job. God, bring gentleness to their heart. Yeah, that's just because you want relief. You just, you just want it to be over. God, give us a good marriage. No, no. Instead, pray this. God, fill my heart with your love. God, fill my heart with your grace. God, remind me of what Christ has done for me. Let that overwhelm me. God, remind me of your jealous love for me. God, I need you. I need you. I own my problem. I need you. That's the prayer. And then who knows? Maybe the relationship will get better. Have you got two people asking for the love of God? Number seven. Now that you've repented, now that you have started with the vertical relationship between you and God, you've identified your desires, you've owned that it's you, my problem is me, my problem isn't them, my problem isn't her, my problem isn't him, my problem isn't them, I I am my own problem. Once we've identified that, now we've gone in repentance to the Lord. Lord, I turn from my sin of idolatry. God, I turn from my spiritual adultery. I have not sought you. I have not chased after your heart. I have not loved as you love. I have not been kind as you are kind. I need you. God, here is my desire. Here is my ask. Change me. Give me love. Give me the security I need. Give me the stability I need. Now that we've done that, now that we've worked on the vertical, now we can re-enter the horizontal. So number seven, now we can express our desires to each other free from expectation. Most people, can't, most people have no idea how to do this. Because when, it, because we're, when we're in conflict, it always, always, always just goes back to, you never, you always. I don't understand why you can't. That's not you expressing your desire. That's you blaming. That's you tearing down the other person. You have to learn to express your desires to each other. I have to let my wife know what I want and need. I have to let my children know. I have to let my boss know what I need in order to get the job done. I have to let my friends know what, what they did that broke my heart and how I desire respect. I desire better treatment. I have to be able to do that. And then guess what I have to be able to do next? Step back away from it and not make it an expectation that I hold over their head. Joy, I told you what I need yesterday night. You've had 12 hours to figure it out. Why are we still having these problems? Why can't you change? 
James says, you covet and you cannot obtain, back in verse 2. <clears throat> the word covet there is just, it's the word for, for like zealously wanting something. You really, really want something, but you can't get it. You know, that implies that what he, what he means is, I want something from the other person. If he was talking about ice cream, if I zealously want ice cream, no problem. I get my car, I drive to the store, I buy ice cream. If he's talking about something that I can just get for myself, that's easy. But here's the thing that we can't get for ourselves, the thing that the other person has to give to us, right? And so I covet it. I need security. I need support. I, I need your help. I, I, need, I, I need you to respect me. I need you to talk to me in a gentler way. I need you to not act that way. I need that. I want that, but I don't expect it. Because that is exactly how Jesus talks to our hearts. Doesn't Jesus say, hey, Brady, I would love for you to love me. <laughs> I would love for you to talk to me more often. I would love for us to spend more quality time together. I would love for you to be honest. But what does Jesus do to the relationship when I fall short of that? Does he start blaming me? Does he start bashing me over the head? Does he start saying, Psh, clearly I'm in this way more than you are. I thought this was a 50-50 thing. Is that what Jesus says to our hearts? No. When we slap Jesus' cheek, what does he do? He turns the other also. Oh, you're going to hit me? Kiss me. You're going to hit me? Kiss me. I'm going to give you another chance. Let's try again. Today's a new day. Mercies are new every morning, aren't they? Brady, you blew it yesterday, but let's just try it again today. I'm here. I'm ready. Praise God. Too often in our relationships, we've set a bar so high that we are literally crushing the people we care about. Listen, some of you are so controlling that you are crushing the people around you. And some of you are so passive that you are crushing the people around you because you just won't engage. Often as men, we think that passivity is somehow e equal to being kind or being nice. God's not looking for nice men. He's looking for courageous men who will engage. Who will trust their Savior. And instead of passively ignoring the people around them, will risk everything and enter into the suffering of others. That's what God's looking for. Number eight, our last one. Give more grace. Give more grace. How much grace has God given? <laughs> it wasn't meant to be a hard question. <laughs> All of it. He gives more. 
God, I need 10 grace points today. All right? Here's 10,000. Spend wisely. Did you ever have your dad do that? Dad, I need five bucks. Here's a 20, son. Have a good time. No, no, nobody had that dad. <laughs> I didn't either. I didn't either. <laughs> but when we do have that dad, it's like, wow, 20 bucks. <laughs> I can get popcorn at the movie. <laughs> God is sitting in heaven with an infinite supply of grace. Not only that, but in Christ, when we are in Christ, we have all of God's grace living in us. Christian, you have everything you need to reconcile. I know you don't believe me. I'll say it again. You, ha you already have everything you need to reconcile. It's in there. You have all the security, all the stability, all the jealous love, all the acceptance, all the respect, all the honor. You have everything Christ has, you have. Is Jesus afraid to reconcile with people? Would Jesus, if Jesus went to Grace Baptist Church, would he walk on eggshells? Would he, would he duck down hallways to avoid people? Would he only speak his mind on social media instead of face-to-face? -face? Would he do that? Would he gossip? Would he, would he think about revenge? Would he think about getting back? I don't think he would. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm right on that. I don't think he would act that way. And Christian, you have everything he has. He gives mega grace. That's what it says. He gifts us with mega grace. I don't have enough grace, Jesus. Yes, you do. You have mega grace. Brady, if I give grace, they'll just act worse. It's the number one thing I hear. Brady, if I show my husband grace, he'll just become a worse person. Church, please understand that it is the exact opposite that is true. Law makes people worse. Law exposes sin and Paul says increases sin. Grace brings godliness. Paul said to Titus, the grace of God, meaning Jesus, has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. It doesn't say the law of God has appeared teaching us to say no to ungodliness. It doesn't say the expectations of God or the strictness of God. The grace of God has appeared to all men teaching us to say no to ungodliness. Only unconditional love can make a heart love unconditionally. This, this can only be done through imputation. Imputation is the tool. You have to be able to give grace to the person who doesn't deserve it. That, that's the definition of grace, by the way. I will show you grace even when you're acting badly. 
I will show you respect even when you don't deserve respect. I will love you unconditionally even when you, you don't seem to deserve that love. This is the work of imputation. This is how God relates to us, and it's how he's asking us to relate to each other. Listen, every relationship, every interpersonal relationship is a relationship between two sinners, isn't it? Right? You're never going to fully trust each other. You're never going to fully be there for each other. You are going to let each other down over and over many times. And if we don't infuse grace into this relationship, it will destroy you both. There has to be a grace that provides permanent, perpetual absolution. There has to be a grace that not only forgives what the other person does, but actually just forgives the other person for existing. I forgive your existence. That's what you have to be able to say. Otherwise, you're going to keep score. You're going to use grace to keep score. Oh, you did another bad thing. I'll forgive you. I'll show grace again. Where's my sticker, Jesus? Thank you. You have to be able to look at people and say, yes, I know you're a sinner. So am I. I forgive you for being a sinner. Now let's move forward. Let's move forward. Parents, well, Brady, don't, don't we need rules in the house? If it's all just grace, don't we need law? My answer, yes. You need rules in your house. You need a law in your house. But listen to me, parents. If you only relate to your children through rules and law, you will crush them. You will provoke them to wrath, as Paul says. Remember, rules and law have a job. Let it do its job. Let it show your child where they're wrong and how they've sinned. But if you want to change your child's heart, you have to then swoop in with grace. You have to relate to them in grace. You have to be able to always welcome them back. There's no perpetual timeout in your house. Go to timeout. Well, when do I get out? When I say so. No. No. Let's talk. Let's think. Okay, can you say sorry? Can you re-enter the community? Yes. Can you re-enter the family? Yes. And I welcome you back every single time because I am jealous for you. And church, listen to me. May this church always be ruled by grace. May, may, may grace be our law. May grace be our guide. Sadly, churches often become the very last place that people find grace. They find judgment. They find opinions. They find traditions that if I don't live up to them, I'm looked down on. When we find our comfort in, in our opinions or our, our doctrines or our traditions, we tend to let those things then divide us instead of remembering the one true doctrine. Christ is all. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father of all who is in all. May that be the rule of our hearts. May our church always be 
Grace Baptist Church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, rule in our hearts with your grace. Be our everything. Be our all. We repent. Again, we repent of our, of our chasing of other things to take the place of you and your love. But God, you are jealous. God, you always come after us. You hunt us down. You get us back. You grab us up in your arms. You carry us back to the, to the house, to safety. Do that even now as we sing this last song. God, pursue our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.